Section 10 of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Janie Whitfield. Meanwhile, at 9 p.m. that night, Peterson was called to the radiation labs. He was met at the door by a glazed-eyed physicist who led him back to his office. He motioned Peterson to a seat and then handed him a sheaf of photographic papers and other charts. Each of the photo sheets had a clear white outline of a test beaker surrounded by a solid field of black. Two of the papers were all white. I don't believe it, Floyd, the physicist said, running his hands through his hair. I've seen it. I've done it. I've tested it. Proven it. And I still don't believe it. Peterson rifled the sheaf of papers and waited expectantly. You don't believe what, Fred? he asked. The physicist leaned over and tapped the papers in Peterson's hand. We've subjected that crazy stuff to every source and kind of high and low energy radiation we can produce here. And that means just about everything short of triggering an H device on it. We fired alphas, gammas, betas, the works in wide dispersion, concentrated beam, and just plain exposure. Not so much as one neutron of any of them went beyond the glass surrounding that forsaken slop. They curved around it, Floyd. They curved around it. The physicist leaned his head on his desk. Nothing should react like that, he sobbed. He struggled for composure as Peterson stared dazedly at the test sheets. That's not the whole story, the physicist continued. He walked to Peterson's side and extracted the two all-white sheets. This, he said brokenly, represents a sheet of photographic paper dipped in that crud, then allowed to dry before being bombarded with radiation. And this, he waved the other sheet, is a piece of photo paper in the center of a panel protected by another sheet of ordinary typing paper coated with that stuff. Peterson looked up at him. A radiation-proof liquid, he said in awed tones. The man nodded dumbly. Eight years of university, the physicist whispered to himself. Six years in summer schools. Four fellowships. Ten years in research. All shot to hell, he screamed, by a stinking hay-burning cow. Peterson patted him gently on the shoulder. It's all right, Fred. Don't take it so hard. It could be worse. How? He asked hollowly. Have this stuff milked from a kangaroo? Back in his office, Peterson waved off a dozen calls while he gave orders for fresh quantities of the blue milk to be rushed to the Argonne laboratories for the radiation test and confirmation of the Nevada results. He ordered a test set up for the brown fluid for the following morning and then took a call from the AEC commissioner. Yes, John, he said. We've got something. Operation Milkmaid was in full swing. The following morning, observers again clustered about the monitoring room as Peterson prepared to duplicate the test using a sample of Melody's brownish milk. There was the same involuntary remote cringing as the first drop of egg fell toward the beaker, but this time Peterson forced himself to watch. Again, the gentle plop was heard through the amplifiers, and nothing more. A similar clouding spread through the already murky fluid, and when the entire contents of one egg had been added, 
the beaker took on a solid brown and totally opaque appearance. The scientist watched the glass container for several minutes, anticipating another possibly delayed blast. When nothing occurred, Peterson nodded to an assistant at an adjoining console. The aide worked a series of levers, and a remotely controlled mechanical arm came into view on the screen. The claw of the arm descended over the beaker and, clasping it gently, bounced it lightly on the cement bunker floor. The only sound was the muffled thunk of the glass container against the concrete. The assistant wiggled his controls gently, and the beaker jiggled back and forth a few inches off the floor. Peterson, who had been watching closely, called out, Do that again. The operator jostled the controls. Look at that, Peterson exclaimed. That stuff's hardened. A quick movement confirmed this, and then Peterson ordered the beaker raised five feet from the floor and slowly tipped. Over the container went as the claw rotated in its socket. The glass had turned almost 180 degrees toward the floor when the entire mass of solidified glob slid out. The watchers caught their breath as it fell to the hard floor. The glob hit the floor and bounced up a couple of inches, fell back, bounced again, and then quivered to a stop. What was soon to be known as Melody's Mighty Material had been born. The testing started, but there was a difference. By the time the brown chunk had been removed from the bunker, it had solidified to the point that nothing could break it or cut it. The surface yielded slightly to the heaviest cutting edge of a power saw and then sprang back, unmarked. A diamond drill spun ineffectually, so the entire block started making the rounds of various labs. It was with downright jubilation that radiation labs reported no properties of resistance for the stuff. One after the other. The test proved nothing until the physical properties unit came up with an idea. You can't cut it, break it, or tear it, the technician told Peterson as he hefted the chunk of lightweight enigma. You can't burn it, shoot holes in it, or so much as mark the surface with any known acid. This stuff tougher than steel and about 50 times lighter. Okay, Peterson asked. So, what good is it? You can mold it when you mix it, the technician said significantly. Hey. You're right, Peterson jumped up excitedly. Why, a spacer cast out of this stuff and coated with Sally's paint would be light enough and shielded enough to work on regular missile fuels. Working under crash priorities, the nation's three leading plastics plants turned out three lightweight molded one-man space vehicles from the government-supplied Melody's Mix. A double coating of Sally's paint then covered the holes and a single-stage liquid-fuel rocket engine was hooked up to the less-than-one-ton engineless hull. Twenty-eight days after the milk first appeared, on a warm August evening, the first vehicle stood on the pads at Cape Canaveral, illuminated by towers of lights. Fuel crews had finished loading the tanks, which would be jettisoned along with the engine at burnout. Inside the rocket, Major Quartermain lounged uncomfortably and cramped in the take-off sling for a short but telling trip through the Van Allen radiation fields and back to Earth. The takeoff sling rested inside an escape capsule, since the use of chemical fuel brought back many of the old uncertainties of launchings. On the return trip, Quartermain would eject at 60,000 feet and pull the capsule's huge parachute for a slow drop to the surface of the Atlantic, where a recovery fleet was standing by. The light rocket hole would pop a separate chute and also drift down for recovery and analysis. Inside the ship, Quartermain sniffed the air and curled his nose. 
Let's get this thing off the road, he spoke into his throat. Mike, some of that Florida air must have seeped in here. Four minutes to final countdown, blockhouse control replied. Turn on your blowers for a second. Outside the ship, the fuel crews cleared their equipment away from the pad. The same ripe, heavy odor hung in the warm night air. At 8.02 p.m., 28 days after the new milks made their first appearance, Major Quartermain blasted off in a perfect launching. At 8.03 p.m., the two other Melody Nine hulls standing on the nearby pads began to melt. At 8.04 p.m., the still-roaring engines fell from the back end of Quartermain's rocket in a flaming arc back towards Earth. Fifteen seconds later, he hurled his escape capsule out of the collapsing rocket hull. The parachute opened, and the daring astronaut drifted towards the sea. Simultaneously, in a dozen labs around the nation, blocks and molds of Melody's mix made from the first batch of milk collapsed into piles of putrid goo. Every day thereafter, newer blocks of the mix reached the 28-day limit and similarly broke down into malodorous blobs. It was a month before the stinking, gooey mess that flowed over the launching pads at the Cape was cleaned up by crews wearing respirators and filter masks. It took considerably longer to get the nation's three top plastics firms back in operation as the fetid flow of unfinished rocket parts wrecked machinery and drove personnel from the area. The glob that had been Quartermain's vehicle fell slowly back to Earth, disintegrating every minute until it reached the consistency of a thin gruel. At this point, it was caught by the jet airstream and carried in a miasmic cloud halfway round the world until it finally floated down to coat the Russian city of Ermansk in a veil of vile odor. The United States disclaimed any knowledge of the cloud. Las Vegas, Nevada, May 8th, Associated Press. The Atomic Energy Commission today announced it has squeezed the last drop from Operation Milkmaid. After a year of futile experimentation has failed to get anything more than good grade-A milk from the world's two most famous cows, the AEC says it has closed down its field laboratory at the Circle T Ranch. Dr. Floyd Patterson, who has been in charge of the attempt to again reproduce Sally's milk, told newsmen that the famed Guernsey and her stablemate, Melanie, no longer gave exotic and unidentifiable liquids that sent man zooming briefly to the stars for a while and looked like we had the thing in the bag. You might say now, though, that the tests have been an utter failure. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., AEC Commissioner... Dot, dot, dot. End of Section 10. Recording by Jeannie Whitfield, Mississippi, USA. End of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael.